The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Hello, Tom. Fine. Thank you. And yourself? Pretty good. Thanks for being here. Appreciate okay. it. Great. How are the youngsters? Great. Great, Father. Glad to hear Doing great. Getting big. Yeah. Father, I thought we could start tonight with an email that we've had in our inbox for almost two years now. So I, uh, I apologize to the viewer for taking this long to get to it, but I thought that we could um, devote a, a chunk of the program to this, Father, because this particular viewer, he's all the way from Australia. He's a great, great friend, great supporter of the of the program. He sent us many wonderful emails that have provided a lot of a lot of great content for the for the program and, and he's 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 been a great supporter of what Catholics believe so I thought that we could we could dedicate some time to this this email concerning capitalism. And I thought that we could just go through it kind of point by point and pick through it that way. And uh, the first point that he that he makes here, Father, he says that capitalism is inherently unjust because it favors capital and the creditor at the expense of the debtor and his labor. <coughs> How would you respond to that? I would say it could, it certainly could, and uh, <clears throat> traditionally, uh, you know, lending money at interest always did that, you know. Um, <clears throat> in a capitalist society, though, where capital is a means of increasing wealth and increasing production, uh, it doesn't necessarily happen that way. Uh, capitalism can actually be to the benefit of the of the uh, the borrower as well and that is because of inventiveness if the borrower himself has an idea uh, that is bringing something new okay a new means of production or a new product to the market uh, this can be something that can enrich someone, if he had the capital to bring it into production or bring it to the market. <clears throat> if, if someone had an idea, let's say inventiveness, um, that enables someone to come up with a brand new idea, what are his possibilities? Either he <clears throat> uh, brings it into reality and brings it to market and benefits from it himself, or he has to rely on somebody else to do it for him, basically losing control of his idea and his inventiveness actually then becomes uh, the benefit of somebody else, right? Um, so if you had a system where you had capital uh, in the hands of uh, you know, a relatively few number of people and not available to other people, then whenever they invented something or came up with some a new means or method to produce, they would just simply have to forfeit their ideas to those who had the capital to bring them into reality. But capitalism enables the common person who has something to offer to go and, and say, I want to borrow this money and use it as I see fit to make my idea a reality and that I will benefit from it. And I will pay you off, and uh, ultimately I will still own my idea. I will be the one ultimately benefiting from my idea, starting my own business, bringing my own invention uh, into reality, whatever it might be. You know, uh, capitalism can be used as a means where the common people can borrow for the sake of uh, actually making their own ideas productive and productive for themselves. You know, Marx was always talking about the alienation process whereby a worker is alienated from his product, right? So capitalism actually can be an answer to that where the, the brainchild of someone who <coughs> um, comes up, you know, thinks of a better mousetrap, designs a better mousetrap, can actually build a better mousetrap. 
and sell it and actually um, <clears throat> establish the better mousetrap company and become a um, uh, actually one of the bourgeoisie himself break out of being just the proletariat is their mere labor you know um, <clears throat> So, in any case, I would say that, yes, it can be such that there are those who borrow uh, out of necessity because they, they are going to lose their house because they don't have food, they have to borrow against their car, whatever it is, necessities of life, and just to keep themselves afloat. But they can borrow themselves into a deep hole, almost like a bottomless pit. <laughs> and that is what we see as uh, usury, Okay. <clears throat> but if we see someone borrowing because he doesn't want to give away his ideas, he doesn't want to give away his industry, he wants to invest his time and his thought and his energy and his prayers into building his own business to support his own family, and uh, capitalism provides a means whereby he can acquire the capital necessary to do that, and by his industry not only pay off the principal with whatever interest was involved, but become debt-free, <clears throat> And, uh, and then establish himself debt-free, and then help others do the same, that's not a bad thing. One, one thing that I guess should be pointed out here, Tom, without, again, going into too much detail. <clears throat> you know, uh, G.K. Chesterton and uh, Hilaire Belloc and others in that uh, um, school of thought in, in England uh, from the restoration of the faith in England um, did not actually subscribe to capitalism or socialism, obviously. They saw socialism as evil. Um, capitalism can be laissez-faire capitalism or mercantilism or whatever you want to call it. But if capitalism follows uh, the Catholic principles, it can be something that is useful and good and helpful for mankind. But what that means is this, that uh, you look upon... Um, not lending and borrowing to someone who needs this to survive, that would be mere usury, so that you can actually get control and take away even what he has, right? Because he can't afford to pay the interest. But if it is meant to be an investment in the productivity of a society, <clears throat> to increase the productivity of the society, and to give people who otherwise don't have the chance to produce the opportunity of the means why they can produce, it can be a good thing. Um, <clears throat> but the, the whole idea of interest is, is a very thorny problem here. Mm -hmm. Because if I, if I have a classroom full, let's say, of 30 students, okay, and I lend to each one of my students $100, <clears throat> And I'm charging them 10% interest. So I'm going to charge them a $10 interest in the course of, let's say, a month or whatever it is here. That means at the end of the period of time, they have to, each one has to pay me back $110. Where does the extra $10 come from in each case? I mean, that's $300 um, that has to be produced that wasn't there before. Well, there has to be more money minted. More money has to be made available so that all of those students can pay back what they owe me, the principal plus the interest. So immediately I have to increase the money supply because I'm expecting more money back than I gave out. Okay? You do that over a whole society and obviously you have to, you know, keep adding to the money supply as you keep charging more and more interest. You want more money back than you, than you lent out. So this is a formula for inflation. Unless, unless the productivity of the group grows with it. You know, if the goods and services grow 10% in that amount of time, well then, you know, you don't have inflation theoretically because, you know, every dollar is accounted for in the terms of the goods or services that are available in the society, and the money should hold its value. But it doesn't always work that way, right? The economy can shrink, as it were. The goods and services can shrink, or, uh, you know, you can get into price wars, or dabble in socialism and have the government step in and start, start manipulating the economy, the, the, economy, the economy, I'm sorry. And uh, inflation, uh, you know, you see what's happening in Venezuela right now. With socialism, that's not a comedy by any means. Uh, it's a tragedy. 
But my point is, in in real in real, I would have to call it if there is such a thing, Christian capitalism. That what is being charged over and above is not merely interest. It is actually a form of compensation for a real investment. In other words, if I were to simply um, offer money for you know, for sale, as it were, $100 to a student and say, I want $110 back at the end of the month, pure, pure interest, that would be wrong, uh, according to the traditional understanding of usury. But if I was actually depriving of myself of something and making something of a sacrifice, uh, for example, the use of that $100, if I was depriving myself of the use and also taking the risk that this student would not be able to pay me back even the $100 that I had borrowed, now, now I'm making a bit of a sacrifice. Now I'm paying a bit of a price, okay, that is more than merely the $100. I'm actually giving something up here. So for me to say I want $110 in compensation is actually a form of compensation for something that I risked <clears throat> and deprived myself of the benefit of this in order to give the benefit of it to that student. So I, I would like to say that I don't consider necessarily that $10 to be just out-out interest I consider it to be the fact that I've actually uh, made an investment in uh, the student's abilities and industry that is actually kind of rewarding him for that. Mm -hmm. And But I should also be rewarded for that confidence and that trust as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, when our, our writer uh, talks about capitalism automatically favoring the lender and putting the borrower at a disadvantage. I would say in, in capitalism that is conducted according to the Catholic understanding of things, it, doesn't, it shouldn't be that way. <clears throat> Actually, the lender takes upon himself a certain risk. <clears throat> the borrower has the means whereby he can actually make productive his industry, his own industry, or his own ideas. All right, and then next point, Father, he says, capitalism is in favor of means of producing more money because money transforms faster into more power and influence, much faster than labor. Securing capital in fewer hands and lending money at an interest is how capitalism works. Without that mechanism, there would be no capitalism. Without the mechanism of, of increasing the money supply or increasing... Of lending money at an interest. It's the concentration of money that he's concerned about. Concentration mm -hmm. of money in, in fewer and fewer hands. Right. Okay? Well, <clears throat> again, you know, we find that socialism does that. Yeah. But true capitalism, I think if you look at the development of our own country, in a free, free economy and free market and so on, I think you find more more people being enriched by by this, and more and more people who didn't have money before, by virtue of their inventiveness and their industry, actually uh, finding that their standard of living is rising and they're having more and more money. The fact that that there are people who make money um, a lot more money than other people uh, is not an argument against. Uh, the, the fact, for example, that there may be a hundred people who are making a lot of money, right, millions, is not an argument against a thousand people who are making hundreds of thousands, who otherwise would not have had the opportunity to do so, because they would have still been working in the shoe factory rather than inventing a better shoe, starting a factory of their own, <coughs> and bringing to market something much better, a better product for the people. So uh, when capitalism is conducted according to really Christian principles, it can be of the benefit for everyone in society. You know? um, it can be. So um, I, I don't know that I agree with uh, what he's saying, that necessarily you have the concentration of wealth in a, in a fewer and fewer hands 
That, I think, we're witnessing today because of socialist meddling of government. And what you find is, I think, that when you have business, okay, capitalism, you have business, and uh, you have politics and politicians, okay, when they are colluding together to control the economy, when you have industry, when you have means of production, working more and more hand-in-glove with politicians. And how do you have that? Well, as business and industry, uh, you know, business leaders want to curry favor with politicians by their financial support for campaigns, and the politicians wanting to curry favor with the business leaders because they want those uh, donations for their campaigns. And so you have the kind of this for that sort of back and forth between the two of them. You, you are then heading towards socialism because you are bringing the means of production pretty much under control of the political order, which is meaning government, okay? Uh, and uh, bureaucrats, bureaucracy and all the rest. That's when you're going towards socialism. And that's what our government is not supposed to be allowing. Our government is supposed to not have that collusion between government, which is supposed to be the public, and business, which is supposed to be the private sector, right? <coughs> but when you get the public sector and the private sector, especially the, the economic drivers, the means of production, uh, so that they are, they are locked together, like they're walking in lockstep, that's when you have socialism. That's when you have wealth concentrated more and more into fewer and fewer hands. Um, because, again, those who make the laws directed that way. Um, and again, they have this symbiotic relationship you know, with each other. I mean, look, the, the major corporations in America and the political powers that be in America, let's face it, I mean, they are... They're in lockstep, you know? They really are working together. Uh, the major corporations of America are pushing the agenda. They're pushing the liberal agenda. They're pushing the leftist agenda. Together with the politicians, they're pu pushing the leftist agenda. Um, you know, you read about the things that, uh, well, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm going out of a limb for saying this, but, you know, you can get a political party that is one of the greatest criminal enterprises in, in, in the history of the world by their lying, cheating, stealing, conniving, and looking to simply seize power, take power in any way they can. And anyone who gets in their way uh, or threatens that, that, that uh, cabal they've got is going to be destroyed. They're going to destroy his reputation any way they can. <clears throat> I mean, we have one political party right now <clears throat> that is continually <clears throat> looking to blame the members of another political party for having uh, committed adultery, for these dalliances, for these relationships. Well, the party that's making the accusations, they're very proud of all these things. You know, when one of their members indulges in these things, they applaud him. And they ask, so what's the big deal? You know, I mean, <clears throat> they actually approve of these things. They're in favor of all kinds of things, from uh, you know, murdering children in the womb by the millions, and, and, and giving government money to, the, to these so-called private organizations that do this, uh, taxpayer money is going to them through the agency of this political party. <clears throat> but they, they stand back and they pretend to be, they adopt this self-righteous attitude of pointing out all of the, the sins of all the members of the other party that they themselves would actually kind of gloat over and be proud of and wink at each other over, you know. But the reason they do that is because <clears throat> they see that those who are supporting the other party care about these things. Their own supporters applaud this behavior, but the supporters of the other party condemn this behavior, and that's why they are adopting this sanctimonious attitude and pointing out the so-called you know, moral failings of the members of the other party. I mean, I consider this to be, you know, basically, essentially a criminal enterprise my own estimation of the matter. When you get that working hand in glove with the left, you know, the leftist agenda there with business, then you find a corrupted form of capitalism 
which is actually um, not capitalism at all. It, it is transforming itself into a socialist society. Mm -hmm. Capitalism out of control, without moral, without any moral bindings, without any limitations, without any restraints, is going to become socialism. I agree with him in the sense that it will degenerate into socialism. Mm -hmm. But as far as big business is concerned, uh, it, it seems that for whatever reason, big business always does gravitate towards the um, towards the liberal and leftist agenda. But I, I wanted to ask, Father, is it ever does does a company ever reach a point where it would be immoral for that company to grow any bigger, to become any larger? I'm thinking in particular of of the Amazon company and how this um, they seem to, to to be taking over the whole world. Basically, they're they're putting all kinds of, of various chains of department stores and retail retail stores out of out of business, and they're just they're crushing all the competition. Is it? Do they ever reach a point? Let where me ask they, you this. Why are governments colluding with them to allow them to do that? Uh, because it, it goes along with their theme of the New World Order and centralizing everything. Right, because it, it furthers the leftist uh, But does that program. does that necessarily happen, or can there be a, a big business that just that literally just, just beats all of the competition because there's... Well, again, it happens so when governments uh, are, have been hijacked, when governments have been hijacked by ideologies. Then, yes, businesses that serve their ideologies will then be favored, right? So the problem starts with, with uh, government. Okay. And those, we're supposed to have uh, a populace who can choose representatives who will, who will look out for their interests and for the, the moral good of all. But when we have a degenerate populace, they will elect people like themselves. In fact, if, if you had, for example, a nation of cheaters <clears throat> then they would elect the like the greatest cheater among them. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had a nation of thieves, they would elect the greatest thief. You know? uh, the, if you had a nation of scoundrels, they would elect the greatest scoundrels. Um, uh, what, I'm, what I'm saying is not foreign to anyone who knows the history of the United States, because you know our founding fathers, even the ones themselves who were not necessarily. Uh, paragons of morality, you know, um, <clears throat> and, but those who, who were at least making an effort, okay, point, also pointed out that morality is the foundation of this, because morality is the foundation of liberty, and you can't have an immoral people and have liberty at the same time, because an immoral people cannot be trusted to be free. They have to live basically in a prison. I'm not, I'm not quoting any of the founding fathers. The point is, the people who you, in any society, who you cannot trust because they're liars, cheaters, and thieves, and murderers, are locked up. They're criminals, okay? But uh, when you have people who are, who are immoral, and your people have descended into the dregs of immorality, uh, this is what you're going to find. You have to impose more and more uh, of a, a prison um, control over a society. Um, <clears throat> So anyway, uh, does it necessarily go this way again? Uh, I think as, as the, there, there, there is this, um, uh, as you elect people who are corrupt, okay, they themselves then have an effect on the moral standards of the people, yeah. of the electorate, okay? And you have this vicious circle going back and forth where uh, the more uh, base the people become, especially in their entertainment, their way of thinking, their moral standards, the way they raise their families, what they inculcate in the next generation, that the, the, the elections reflect that. The kind of people they elect reflect that. And then the moral standards of the people who are elected definitely influence the electorate in turn. And they are degraded, and then they elect even further degraded people. And it goes on and on down this, this great vortex. Like, it's almost like the uh, uh, draining the tub, or, or worse, where you get this vortex flowing down. You know? mm -hmm. And uh, the only thing that can lift that up, really, is faith, hope, and charity. Supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Uh, ultimately, the Catholic Church, ultimately... The Catholic Church was 
made by Almighty God himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be the conscience of mankind and the source of the graces for mankind. And uh, the modernist targeted the church precisely in order to, in order to stop that. <clears throat> and um, it is no accident uh, that in the immediate wake of Vatican II, the entire world just began to, to disintegrate mm -hmm. with abortion and, and, and all the rest that, that follows from it, right? right. Uh, anyone who can't see a cause and effect relationship between the modernist invasion uh, of Vatican II and, uh, and what has happened throughout the world, uh, the person has doesn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. <laughs> okay. um, or they're just in denial. Right. Well, Father, let's get back to the semen. He has another uh, point here where he says, the world without capitalism was the world of Christian Europe in the Middle Ages. Do you agree with that? Um, I don't think so. I don't think I do. And here's the reason, okay? The guilds, I think... The guilds, I, I believe, were a form of capitalism. Now, the society in which the, um, the guilds flourished was a feudal society. F, not F-U-T-I-L-E, but F-E-U-D-A-L, okay? And the word feudal came from basically faith. faith. It was based upon oaths of fealty, and, uh, be, you know, the, 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 uh, the nobles would be bound by oaths of fealty to their lords, and, and then others would be bound to oaths of fealty to their nobles. And uh, it was held together by faith and obligations, ultimately to God, to be faithful to one's word. The fidelity to one's word is the staple of any economy. Um, after the so-called fall of the so-called Iron Curtain, right? <clears throat> Glasnost, perestroika, and all that. <clears throat> there were efforts to start a free economy in uh, the former Soviet Union. And it wasn't working out very well. Um, and one economist pointed out that it couldn't work uh, unless people stopped thinking like communists. So because um, in socialist and communist societies, the, the objective is to survive. That is the challenge, to survive. And you can see that in Venezuela right now. The objective now is to survive. And um, he said that in the socialist and, and communist societies, therefore, Somehow, you, to survive, you have to basically steal. Uh, you, you have to be more ruthless than the next person. You have to find a way to survive. Honesty in such a society is not a formula for survival. His point was that transitioning from that society where people did not and could not trust each other to a society which was based upon, let's say, a free market that was based upon, well, um, free enterprise, involves contracts. People have to give their word and they have to keep their word. People have to trust the word of another person. That's what contracts are all about. Word that is given, word that is taken, word that is trusted, word that is fulfilled. He said in a communist and socialist society, there's no foundation for that trust. So he said, said for there to be a true free enterprise uh, system, economy in uh, any communist, former communist country, there had to be a, a massive change in society where people began to be honest, truthful, realize the obligation to keep their word, and then trust each other to keep their word and fulfill their obligations. That would have to be the very minimal foundation for any free society, a free economy. I thought that was a pretty interesting comment this economist made. And um, <clears throat> so um, 
Could you read that question again? I want to actually zero in on something sure. you said there. Sure. And then um, he also gives a little more well, I'm, I'm just, background. Just okay. Okay. Sure. Uh, the world without capitalism was the world of okay. Christian Europe in the Middle okay. Ages. Yeah. See, that's, that's what I, I disagree with, because I, I think that while you didn't have uh, governments involved, mm -hmm. you had the economy carried on by the people in subsidiary groups, like the guilds of shoemakers, the guild of blacksmiths, you know, the guild of, <coughs> of um, uh, tailors and so on. And they actually supported each other. <coughs> they protected each other insofar as you belong to the guild that was dedicated to a patron saint. And your business was protected. You, you couldn't just have somebody move in and take over and drive you out of business. You know? So they actually worked together. It wasn't really so much a union, though, because their objective also was to provide not only living for those families there, but for their future for uh, their children and their children's children. So they wanted very much a stable economy. But the point I'm getting at is <clears throat> they had ways of turning to people <clears throat> to obtain the means that they, the means that they needed in order to make business grow. Um, they had that support from somewhere. They might not go to a money lender, okay? and uh, borrow money at interest in order to open a new tailor shop, right? But within the organization of the tailor's guild, they would, they would find the support that they needed mm -hmm. to expand. And this is, the, this is my whole point. Capitalism pr can provide a means to expand the, the goods and the services in a society uh, where it's really called for. It's just like growth, you know. The cells of our body grow, thank goodness they do, but when they grow out of control, they become tumors. <clears throat> and this is why good government is there, not to actually <clears throat> dominate the economy, but to regulate, to, but to regulate, let's say, the metabolism so tumors don't grow, that will kill the body politic and the society. That's what it's for. But Catholic understanding is this, Tom. A Catholic understanding of government is the principle of subsidiarity. That the higher level of government should have the least level of involvement in the daily lives of the people. Because the principle of subsidiarity says that people should govern themselves on, on the levels closest to them in their daily lives. And the only reason that there should be a government controlling that that level or, or above that level is to fulfill and to enable them to fulfill their functions so every level of government as it were the uh, uh, higher level of government is merely meant to, to be there to serve the people below them government of the people by the people and for the people is a, is a really catholic idea um, so governments, for example, the, uh, the federal government in the Catholic mind would be that the federal government is there to enable the states to govern well. The state government is there to enable the county governments to govern well for the benefit of their people. And the county government is there to enable the, the village and the, the townships and so on, the cities, to govern well. Uh, otherwise, they, they are not to interfere. Principle of subsidiarity. That's what you saw in the Middle Ages. Okay, um, and that's why they were, you know, quite successful. I would say yes, you had Christian a Christian economy back then, but um, I I don't know that there wasn't some semblance of capitalism in terms of a mechanism that would allow growth. Okay. Father, tell me if you agree with this assessment of history that he outlines here. It says, before capitalism, European economy was outlined roughly by Benedictine rule, which valued prayer and labor. A man and his family would owe to his landowner labor, not money. And all extras which was not consumed from the production was accumulated and preserved within the monasteries and distributed where needed. After many centuries, such accumulated commonwealth was enormous. 
Protestant uprises were mostly orchestrated by princes to loot that common property into private hands. And from those times, we have capitalism spreading in the Western world. That was the main reason for Protestantism. Theology was only an excuse. Mm. Well, actually, there's a lot of truth to what this gentleman is saying here. There's no doubt about it. Um, the monasteries did uh, occupy much of the land. Actually, the, the monasteries received much of their land from the nobles um, during feudal times. Uh, as the monasteries grow, uh, often those lands were given to them as gifts. And many of the monasteries were actually established through the largesse of nobles and who valued you know, their, their contribution uh, before God and man. Um, and it is true in England, for example, that it was one huge looting process of the squires, uh, the nobles of England, enriching themselves um, uh, through the, you know, the attack on the church. They saw that this was a means of looting the church, basically. Um, and it is true that the poor uh, people in England were provided for by the monasteries. And uh, when the monasteries were looted by the, um, the lesser nobles and the, and the upper nobles, the higher nobles of England, the poor were wandering the streets of London as beggars. No, it's true. It's a historical fact. Okay? This was the result of the Protestant so-called Reformation in England. And you'll find that wherever a Protestantism took hold, this is the way it went. I think, I think ultimately what our writer is, is talking about I actually think he is referring to uh, the banks, the banking system. Um, when he's talking about capitalism, I don't know that he's talking about an idea so much as he's talking about an institution. <clears throat> and maybe that's why I'm not, I just feel as I'm not really responding exactly to the things that he's asking. And I think that's why. <clears throat> as far as the banking institution, I, I would have to agree with him in that. I think the banking institution itself is, uh, if not intrinsically corrupt, it, it is uh, extremely dangerous uh, because it does concentrate money, it concentrates power, it concentrates wealth, it concentrates especially control over the economy. And especially when you have so-called central banks that actually control the wealth of nations. And uh, I mean, even down to what the father of family can put on his table to feed his children day by day, you've got something there that is uh, just a leviathan that is uh, ripe for abuse and evil. Mm -hmm. That is something that should not exist, right? In fact, in our own country, there was a tremendous battle, a pitched battle in our own legislatures about the idea of having central bank in 1913, the Federal, Federal Reserve, right? Uh, there are so those who think the Federal Reserve is a great savior of the economy. The, the evils that have been caused by the manipulations of the money supply is just incredible. And there were those who, who talked about the United States having been betrayed into the, into, the, into the hands of its enemies with the approval, the foundation of that central bank. Um, Andrew Jackson was involved in this great struggle back when, you know, 100 years before so, uh, yeah, that, that is another question. Um, I'm talking about something else other than what this uh, gentleman is thinking of. He's, pro he's probably thinking more in, in terms of the banking industry. Now, the banking industry is not an industry at all in the sense that it doesn't really produce anything. It's like the entertainment industry. What does it produce? And if anything, it prevents, prevents people from producing, right? It just produces itself, more entertainment, right? But people are entertaining themselves to death insofar as they're busy being entertained and not producing anything while they're doing it, right? They're just kind of vegetating <laughs> or uh, their minds are, are passive. Um, so the uh, matter of mere entertainment, as it is referred to these days, the entertainment industry of the day, is so corrupt. <coughs> the banking industry today so corrupt. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that everybody involved is corrupt. I mean, we, you know, there are good people we know who are working in the industry, and some who are working for the Federal Reserve, right? 
but they understand what they're dealing with. I mean, there are people who are working with companies, major companies right now, who are horrified by the things their companies stand for and by the things their companies are doing. But it doesn't make them evil because they're working for, you know, an airline or a, or a soap manufacturer or something because they realize what these companies are doing. So when I'm talking about the banking industry, so-called, I'm not criticizing those who work in these industries, okay? But I think many of these people would realize that, yes, there, there, there is definitely something amiss here, something that is horribly out of whack mm -hmm. and uh, very immoral and at least, at least they would say, very dangerous. Um, manipulating money supplies, the, the name that comes to mind immediately is that of George Soros. Right? And all the evil things that he is supporting. And, uh, and actually, there, there are accounts, no, I can't verify them, but there are accounts of him even manipulating uh, business within nations to his own advantage, aggrandizing himself by the millions of dollars <coughs> at the expense of entire nations, smaller nations. This is the power that is behind this. And to the extent that our writer is talking about that, I agree with him absolutely. Okay. It's a very evil thing. Yeah. Father, one final point, point here. He mentions uh, the poet Dante he lived in Florence, and uh, he says that uh, he, lives in, he lived in Florence in times when the city was rising into an early capitalist republic, which decreased labor and installed lending at compound interest. And he witnessed two sins that arose from such dependence on luxury, provided by self-copulating money. The two sins were usury and sodomy, and the same two sins we witness today, hand in hand, one promoting another. And he talks about, in uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, he puts both the sodomites and the usurers deep in the seventh circle of hell, where the nature of their sins are, is intertwined. Usur usurers take that what is by nature sterile, money, to artificially copulate and produce more money, while the sodomites take that what is by nature fertile, to copulate and make it sterile. Mm -hmm. Well, I would have to agree to some extent, but as I say, insofar as in, in an economy, uh, there are those who are inventive, right? And those who, um, shall we say, do not have the means to develop their ideas, their inventions, they either have the, uh, the possibility only of letting others who have the capital or have the wealth, surrendering it to others who have the means to bring it and, and thus lose it, right? I would say that money is not necessarily sterile in a case like that. Mm -hmm. uh, that money can actually be productive of something good insofar as it enables us, I mean, uh, look, I and mean, I know this is far afield. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. But uh, the power of reason, we're told by the philosophers, is that the, the faculty of reason is the power whereby we understand things in their causes. And the rational mind is able to understand things in their causes. This is what gives us the power of inventiveness, Okay. Because that rational power, together with the human imagination, can actually conceive of things that don't even exist yet. We can, by thought, uh, bring, bring about in our minds first, and then uh, from our minds, then actually bring them into a physical reality. Things that don't exist, like airplanes, okay? The, the airplane existed in the mind of someone before it ever existed on the drawing board, before it ever existed in the, in the draftsman's pen, before it ever existed in parts of the factory, and before an airplane ever flew. Long before that, it existed in the mind. And people developed these things, thought by thought, okay? And uh, we realize now that uh, that that, that uh, thought is labor, is a genuine form of significant labor. Uh, in fact, the most human labor, more than digging ditches, right? Uh, even more than turning a, a bolt or popping a rivet, 
um, into a piece of metal. It's the idea that, that the thought, the ability to think of this makes us rational creatures. And that should be rewarded too. And what enables someone to have this? What even in, gives him the incentive to do so? Uh, but for the fact that he can actually make his ideas real, right? And St. Thomas says, <clears throat> art is the idealization of the real and the realization of the ideal. <clears throat> well, to realize the ideal or the idea is a very important of human aspect of human artifice. And somehow we need to be able to realize the ideas in our minds, you know? On a canvas or in putting wings on a building and making it fly, calling it an airplane. We need to be able to realize that, to bring it into reality. This is our inventiveness, you know? And uh, I dare say that um, <clears throat> capitalism, by that I don't mean the banking business or the industry, I don't mean that. No, that is a, that is a corruption in my mind. That's a complete corruption of capitalism. Now there are those who argue, might well argue, that this is the necessary and inevitable consequence of the whole capitalist idea. I think that's worth discussing, but I don't see it that way right now, okay? I see people criticizing that, and I agree with them, okay? Mm. But to, con to convolute that with the capital, the, the whole concept of capitalism, the basic principles of capitalism, I'm not sure I see that capitalism, capitalism inevitably leads to that. I think it can when it is corrupted and detached from true Catholic morality. <laughs> But I, I do not agree that money is of its very nature sterile and can't be used under any circumstances to produce anything of value or anything good. I think that's not true. Okay. Uh, I think it can be, money can be very, very badly abused. And, and insofar as it lends itself to be manipulated, yes, it is something dangerous. I'd much rather have a bartering system. Uh, but again, I know, for that to enable the inventive human mind to realize the idea or the ideal, what it's thinking, uh, I'm not sure exactly how that would work. <laughs> Maybe distributism is something we should look into, you know. Um, so, anyway, I, I, again, I think, again, the problem might come down to being talking talk about two different things mm -hmm. that are related but they're not identical. Okay. So, Father, to, to kind of tie all this up, has the church ever made any kind of pronouncement on its preferred economic system? Obviously, uh, socialism is intrinsically immoral. You say that capitalism can can be moral or immoral. Has the church ever pronounced, let's say, distributism? Or not until Francis. Not until Francis has the church ever condemned capitalism. Okay. It took Francis to condemn capitalism. Uh, it took Francis to actually. Uh, cast a benevolent eye toward socialism and to promote socialism, okay? Although the other Nova Sordo uh, pontiffs who've come before him have all spoken of world, a world authority to, to control the economy, uh, Francis is the one who's publicly consorting with and fetting uh, socialist dictators around the world. <coughs> <coughs> The church has not actually condemned capitalism. She would definitely condemn that type of capitalism that is corrupting into socialism. She would definitely... Uh, the church has always condemned tyranny and anarchy. <clears throat> and she sees the two as being... Um, as actually being extremes that provoke each other. That tyranny degenerates into anarchy and anarchy degenerates into tyranny. Uh, what she wants is that we have our God-given rights and we can pursue them freely and use them and develop our talents and, and so on. And so she hasn't developed, she hasn't condemned capitalism as such, the capitalist idea. She ha could easily condemn various, um, shall we say, um, incarnations or forms of capitalism that have developed. But I think in that case, she would be again condemning uh, economic anarchy or economic tyranny. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> again, when you have a, a government, you know, the, the church has, 
See, it says there are legitimate forms of government. There's monarchy. There's aristocracy. There's a republic, a representative government. And these degenerate. When they degenerate, the monarchy degenerates into dictatorship or a, a tyranny. A dictatorship of a single tyrant, okay? An aristocracy degenerates through immorality into an oligarchy, whereby the oligarchy, this small cadre, a cabal of people, controls everybody and everything, okay? <clears throat> the republic, as representative government, degenerates into democracy, which is a form of mob rule, okay? Um, but all of these are tyrannies. I mean, whether you look at um, <clears throat> the dictator or you look at the, whether you call him the Il Duce or the Fuhrer or, 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 or Stalin, the man of steel, who is the secretary of the Communist Party, whatever it is, you have tyranny. When you have an aristocracy generate into an oligarchy, you have tyranny. When you have a republic, a representative government degenerating into democracy, ultimately you have tyranny. They're just different forms of tyranny. The church has always condemned that. But they always degenerate first into anarchy, or ultimately de degenerate into anarchy, which always winds up producing an even worse tyranny. Yeah. How, would, uh, how would the church respond to the idea of utilitarianism? There's a very um, an, a famous economist, uh, Henry Hazlitt, who is very, very popular in conservative circles, and he wrote a book, uh, I believe it, it was titled One Simple Lesson in Economics, and his one simple lesson is that all of our economic policies should be based upon finding the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. How would the church feel about that economic policy? The church would condemn that idea. Okay. I mean, just on the basis of what you just said, mm -hmm. the church would condemn it, because there have to be absolute moral principles which determine what you can do. And if your absolute principle is the greatest good, whatever he means by that, for the greatest number of people, on the surface of it, you could say, no matter, you know, no matter how you take advantage of the smallest number of people, it's okay, as long as you serve the greatest number of people, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if you have to enslave a small number of people to provide the greatest good for the most people, According to that principle, that would be okay if there were no moral restraints that were absolutes over and above that, things that simply cannot be done under any circumstances. So, uh, again, I, I would think that would be another formula for tyranny, without moral restraints, and that's where you need the faith. That's where you need the Catholic faith and those who will actually uphold it, especially in government. Okay. Those are the people you have to elect. Well, Father, we had another email that I thought... By the way, when I say have to elect, I mean in a country like ours, if you have a Catholic monarch who rules as a Catholic monarch according to the principles of the gospel, you will have a good government with a good society and, and a good people. Right. Where you have a Catholic aristocracy of people who rule according to Catholic principles, okay, and really care about the good of the people uh, as people, as persons physically and spiritually, okay, body and soul. And they really govern according to the principles of the gospel, the principles of Christ. You'll have a well-run society with a well-run economy and people will benefit and they'll be happy. If you have, again, you know, a, a representative government with representatives who are truly moral and good and they have the faith and they love our God and they will try to, uh, they try to serve him well and follow the principles of Christ in governing their society and in regulating the economy according to his principles and the principle of subsidiarity. <clears throat> there you'll have a well-run society and the people will, will, will be happy and thrive. Mm -hmm. But when you depart, it, it all gets back to his moral principles. And that's what I'm afraid that Mr. Hazlitt is, is uh, leaving aside as far as, just on the basis of what you've told me here. And that is inevitably, again, going to wind up um, in anarchy and tyranny. I think that's a great point to make, Father, because you see uh, so many people want to uphold uh, democracy in that form of government as just this uh, this amazing thing that can solve all the world's problems, and we try and export democracy to all of these nations, and this this is, is the magic pill that's going to cure everything and all all the world's all the world's ills. But well, you know, there's a lot of not only confusion, but there's a lot of propaganda about this. 
I mean, a lot of the kids today are being raised with this, what we were raised with, too. And you had, um, we were told back in, in the day, there, there were the socialists and there were the fascists, okay? And because of the political oppositions going on in Italy and other areas, and the Soviet Union and Germany and so on, you had fascism, you had socialism, fascism and communists, okay? You had the liberals and you had the conservatives, and you know you have that, that line of, of political reality, supposedly, that defines how we're supposed to think about these things. The church doesn't think about these things. The church doesn't think of it that way at all. In fact, the church says that's, 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 that's uh, just a deception to mask what's really happening for the people. <clears throat> I mean, what's a conservative today? A conservative is someone who wants to conserve what we've got? Is that what conservatism means? Yesterday's liberal. Yesterday's liberal. And tomorrow's who knows what. So, I mean, um, you know, this was meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless. And you, you read the newspapers, and they go, oh, the far right this, and the, 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 how, hardly ever do they talk about the far left. It's always the far right, the far right, the far right, right? What does it mean? It means nothing. It means exactly. It means only what you think it means. What you think, what they want you to think it means. You know? What they can get get to think in your mind. Okay. And the church looks upon this whole thing uh, in a very in a very different way. <clears throat> you have uh, a, like a paragon where the rights, the God given rights, are respected and and uh, protected by the government of man, right? And then you have the degeneration. Uh, it goes down to the level of, again, <clears throat> anarchy and tyranny, which are both forms of uh, complete uh, loss of all, of all human rights, the right to life or anything else. That's the scale. Um, so... Um, the trouble is that, you know, you, you can talk about anarchy being here, where total government, total control, tyranny being here, uh, or anarchy, where, where things are totally out of control, and tyranny, where things are totally under the control of one or a, a, a small group or a mob, right? But ultimately, they come together where they're both, they're both tyrannical. And uh, so we have to... Um, find that the, the, what the, the real answer is, and what they're trying to disguise is, the only answer to this is what our Lord Jesus Christ has given to us in our faith, and the understanding that the principles of government, whether they're being applied well by one man or a small group of aristocrats, uh, or uh, let's say the electorate electing uh, representatives, if they follow the principles of the gospel, you're going to have a well-run society. If you depart from that, it's going to be a disaster. Mm -hmm. well, Father, real quick, I wanted to mention this email because it seems to go along nicely with what we're talking about. Where this, your kind of comments, how you know many modernists will will try and uh, will try and paint our Lord in the gospel as a socialist. Mm -hmm. And this this viewer makes the point that uh, for those who say Jesus was a socialist, they should read. St. Luke chapter 19, where there's the parable of, of the king giving the talents to his, uh, to, his, to his servants and telling them to invest them wisely. And he asks, well, if our Lord is a socialist, then why is he giving out these money, telling his servants to make these wise investments? It doesn't seem to, uh, seem to be a contradiction. Well, our Lord is talking about uh, not really coins here. He's talking on the spiritual level, mm -hmm. clearly, right? Yeah. So he wants them to go and invest. But that's that's a very interesting uh, a very interesting illusion here, um, and I'm, I don't mean to get off on another track here. But in the English, the king actually gives talents, but I think it is in Saint Luke he's giving na, mm -hmm. m n a, nas. Okay, a different type of currency, right? And in in that in that one, I think there's a, a somewhat difference in the conclusion. And that is <clears throat> with a servant who buried the talent, okay, or the na, brought it to the Lord and said, "Here's your here's your na back, or here's your talent back." I buried it because I knew you were a very severe man, taking what was not yours, right, and demanding what you had not labored for, whatever it was, and uh, then. 
our Lord said he would say to him, well, you're basically condemning yourself out of your own mouth because if you really thought that I was someone who took what was not, what was not mine and aggrandized myself, you know, unjustly, then why didn't you take my money and give it to the usurers? As though that was an example of what the man was saying. Mm. Give it to the usurers, so at least I would have been able to collect interest on my money. And it's kind of curious that our Lord would say that, because the accusation was that he was taking what he had no right to. And you were very severe, and that's why I buried it. <clears throat> I didn't work with it. But our Lord said, well, you could have gotten me interest if you really thought that's the kind of person I was, and you wanted to please me. You would have gone and gotten me some usury, some usurious interest, right? But in other words, because the man was being dishonest, because he was just using that as an, as an excuse, and even an insult, our Lord took that coin away from him and gave it to the man who had the ten talents. And he rewarded the man who had the ten talents, made the five into the ten. He rewarded him for that. So that would lend itself to the interpretation that our writer is writing. Because then there was the objection in the gospel. The objection was raised, but Lord, he already has ten talents. As if to say, well, why would you take one and give him one more? If he now, he made your five grow into ten, why give him now an eleventh? And our Lord said, those who have, even, even what he has will be added to. In other words, those who do not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. And that's, an interest, that's a curious statement. When you read it at first, you wonder, okay, what does that mean? And it shows that those who have the talent with our, of our, uh, from, our, from God, those who have the ability from God, and don't use it, they will lose it. But it will be given to those who will make it productive. Right? And so, but, but this gentleman says here, actually, Tom, Believe it or not, I mean, what you just said, you just gave the key to what our Australian writer was saying and what I'm saying, too. You just introduced the key here. I guess that's what I'm getting at in a rather convoluted sort of way. And that is the ability for something to be productive. When this one man received five talents, he went out and he worked with it, and he made another five talents. Did he take it to usurers and gain interest? Is that how, what did he do with it? What did he do with that money? Labored and invested it. <clears throat> he used the money, right. Somehow he used that money to make more money. Okay. So it wasn't inert, it wasn't fruitless, it wasn't productive of nothing, right? He made it productive, and that's what this gentleman is, that's what you're pointing out here, he made it productive. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what I'm saying, it can be made productive. And the same with the two talents, we made productive. Okay. Um, it's, it is interesting, though, that um, our Lord, for the man who received the one talent, who wouldn't even let's take it to the users to gain, to gain whatever interest they could, they could give him by lending it out, that that was condemned by our Lord. Mm -hmm. okay. So uh, in talking about... Um, Again, getting back to this, because it is something that I think there's a lot of confusion over. Um, the current banking system, the international bankers, the central banks, and all the rest, has the world by the throat right now. That I totally agree. Um, that that is capitalism. I guess I don't see that as capitalism. I see that as, I see that as socialism. I see that as the ultimate outcome of bringing the means of production into the hands of the world power, government power, uh, which is lending itself in the direction of the one world government, uh, which will ultimately be under the control of the Antichrist. That's what I see. So, uh, you know, maybe it's a matter of semantics or definition of terms, but I'd be very interested to hear what our our fine gentleman in Australia waited two years 
care. I'd, I'd be interested to hear from him his assessment of the whole thing. Because I'm sure he'll have some interesting things to say. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, Father, I know that, that uh, you had more that we wanted to get to. This has already been a, a rather lengthy program, so perhaps if you're up for it, we could um, we could save that for a, a later. Tom, more than I could blame it on you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can't. In all humility, I take full, yeah. full responsibility for the length of this Sounds program. Good. So. Well, thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for being here tonight. I just sure. wanted the poor gentleman you know, to wait two years to you know, <laughs> make him think that he could have waited another two years. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, God bless you yep. and, and all of and him, too, for that. Definitely. Thank you, Father. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.